0: Everybody, welcome to an episode of the Master Instructor Roundtable. My name is Wendy Batts, and I am here with my fellow Master Instructor as well as my better half, Mr. Tony Amblerite. So, Tony, how are you?
1: Doing fantastic, everyone.
0: Really, really excited about today's episode because we have two amazing special guests. We are joined today with Aaron Nelson, who is the Vice President of Player Care and Performance for the NBA's New Orleans Pelicans. So Aaron, thank you for being here. And uh, yeah, we also have Mike Elliott, who is the VP of Performance Healthcare for the NBA's Utah Jazz. So Mike, thank you as well for being here.
1: Thanks for having me, thank you. Yeah, Tony, do you wanna kick
0: us off? We've got so many questions for you guys.
1: (laughs) We do, gosh, don't know where to begin. I guess uh, probably, the uh, the most obvious place is to just start with, um, you know, what you do in your current role. So as a VP, Aaron, uh, as a VP of Player Care and Performance for the the Pelicans, and and Mike as a VP of Performance Healthcare for the Jazz, you know, what does that actually mean? What do you do day to day? And uh, we can kind of dovetail from there and and dive deeper into uh, into some uh, topics as they come up.
2: Well, I think uh, the easiest way is, you know, come in at 9, punch the card out, and that's pretty much it for the day. No, <laughs> you know, uh, you know it, it's grown. The role's, uh, the role's really grown, and, and I know Mike will have uh, some really good perspective. But, um, you know, overseeing the sports medicine, the performance, the training, uh, the mental health, um, nutrition uh and and having an incredible staff around to uh to you know head up those areas and just kind of you know you know direct to make sure that we have everything that that our players need to you know stay injury free and and hopefully perform at a really high level
3: awesome yeah and i think as kind of aaron alluded to things have changed quite a bit over time um we were working together on a staff of uh, three people back in the day and now we've got a staff uh, upwards of 10. Um, and so it's, you know, managing those people and in the, in the uh, you know, the different uh, diverse things that they represent with inside of the group from athletic training to strength and conditioning, to sports science, to nutrition, uh, to mental health, and kind of, uh, you know, creating a structure and a framework to be able to intervene with your players on a day, daily basis but also maintain communication within our group so that we know where uh, anyone is at any given time the way that they're feeling and, and how we can you know further intervene to, to get them in a better place so
1: no, that's that's great.
0: A, well i have a you know question basically for both of you because you know you are in incredible roles and you're working with you know. The NBA, which is a dream for so many trainers as well as athletic trainers. And so, can you tell us how did you get into your job, like your position that you're in today? Like, where did your journey start? And then, how did you get to where you are?
3: You want to go first, Mike? You want me to go?
2: Sure.
0: No, I'll go
3: because you got me to where I am, really, at the end of the day. Um, so, I, I got interested in athletic training when I started as a ball boy for the Suns. I think I was in seventh grade when I started. Um, i got to know aaron uh while i was in high school he came on to the to the sun's athletic training staff as their assistant athletic trainer i think in 92 is that right yeah
2: 1993 season
3: yeah and so um i was definitely a youngster back then but i realized kind of being around the training room and in the locker room that it was a cool environment i was always interested in athletics um fancied myself as an athlete but then kind of came to my senses um and started studying athletic training when I was in high school because of everything that I had been around with um, with the sons uh, back behind the scenes. And, you know, chose to go to, to school at Arizona State, study athletic training there. Um, I was working in the locker room for the sons during that time as well. And Aaron created an internship opportunity for me, my fifth year at Arizona State. Took me five years for whatever reason at ASU uh, to graduate. But, um, you know, created that opportunity for me, got my foot in the door, got to meet a lot of people. Um, and after that, I moved on to work in physical therapy clinic in Tempe, Arizona, just for a short period of time, transitioned to the NBA's, uh, D league, which is now the G league, but the minor league at the time in South Carolina, worked there for a season, uh, came back to Phoenix and Aaron had a job available on his staff. Uh, he hired me at that point in time. And, um, I stayed there with him for 15 years and then um, served in various different roles there from assistant trainer to assistant strength coach to director of rehab, uh, to head strength coach to director of performance, and then moved on to this current role with the Jazz. I've been here for four years now.
2: Yeah, Mike summed it up. You know, I I want to say, um, obviously part of success in a professional environment is as is, is having a unique team and a, and a team that communicates and gets along very well and you know watching mike grow up uh, as, like you said as a young fella i was actually really young i think when I, I was 23 when i started as assistant uh 30 when i took over as the head athletic trainer and you know mike is an incredible incredible person and and even more so professional uh, you know, he f- fulfilled roles or, and, and duties that we wanted to have. And it's interesting back then because, like Mike said, early on, we had three people. And now staffs have, you know, 8 to 12 or sometimes even more. And so to try to bring someone in and add someone back then wasn't always easy to do. But uh, I couldn't wait to uh, have Mike join us, especially at a young age and start similar to where I did at a young age and, and grow. And, and man, he, you know, he'd stop see. Been incredible. Had an incredible journey and, and doing great things. So that part's great. And and so from where I came from, similar. Uh, grew up in a small town in Iowa. Uh, played four sports. Uh, loved sports. My mom was a nurse. Decided I wanted to go into sports medicine. No idea what an athletic trainer was. Uh, by the time I was a junior senior uh, in high school, learned what an athletic trainer was. Ended up going to Iowa State, who at the time had one deep supposedly the best uh, internship program. So it was basically hands-on uh, right right off the bat as a freshman. Now it's all academic. Um, went to Iowa State, uh, was going to go to – actually started out pre-med, then went to pre-PT, then decided I was going to go – when I said I was going to go to BT school, uh, got hired by the Suns. I, I worked for a couple of their arena teams. Uh, got hired by the Suns and uh, end up going to ASU, starting my master's there and then finishing it later um, at Cal PA and uh, was with the Suns from 92-93 90, season through 2000 when I became the head athletic trainer. I was there for 26 total years, 16, uh, yeah, 20, 26 total years and then came to the Pelicans two years ago. So I'm entering year 29 uh, and that's that's the course and and it's been uh, it's been a fun ride. It's been a lot of a lot of growth and looking for when I was the assistant athletic trainer to now, uh, the VP of player care and performance, totally different league, totally different, you know, people we're working with, uh, not only as athletes, but you know, within our environment and, and, and people we have to deal with outside of our environment. Uh, so it's, it's been an interesting journey to say the least.
1: Yeah. So <clears throat> sounds like it, uh, you guys miss working together. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah,
2: We talk about it all the time. I mean, we love it. Mike, Mike's awesome and you hate to break up something great. And it's it, it you, you think you might get it over, get over it at some point. But Mike said we we're together 15, 16 years, way more. So his ball kid, he's you, just, you, uh, you know, you just grow and you you like each other professionally and personally, and that doesn't always happen everywhere. So,
1: yeah, for sure. Uh, well, you know, you mentioned it before uh, Nellie. You, know, you didn't know what athletic what an athletic trainer was i think just for our audience uh to create some distinction there um would you guys mind sharing a little bit about what an athlete what an athletic trainer does um you know what do you uh what do you wish that everybody kind of understood about being an athletic trainer how is that different from let's say working as a personal trainer or as a strength and conditioning coach obviously um, there's a lot of different directions you know very similar maybe in terms of the school required from an undergraduate perspective and then at some point there's a branch off and you know if you uh if you're an athletic trainer uh, athletic training major there's other requirements and things you have to do if you go into exercise science or exercise phys there's other things you have to do so would you mind just breaking that down for the audience and Kind of describe what uh, what an athletic trainer does, um, particularly in the pro sports environment, and then over time, uh, or and then we can discuss how that has uh, evolved over time. Um, your time in the league.
2: I think we've we obviously we've seen it evolve. Uh, when when I started as an athletic trainer, so it's four years of school minimum. Um, you know, graduate with your degree, and then set for your uh, board of certification and, and take your exam. And then it's grown now to a point where you do your under, your four years undergrad and then it's a graduate degree program. So you're going to go the extra two years and, and or however long it takes. And, uh, you know, m- most of us have done that anyway. The, the ones that start out with four year program and end up going to get get our master's in, in that. So it's, it's grown dramatically, I guess. The, the big thing is, there is a there is a difference. You know, we're recognized as uh, medical professionals. Uh, so we have we're trained in a lot of different areas, um, you know, from exercise science and injury prevention and, and more from a sports medicine and some strength and conditioning, nutrition, we're getting bits and pieces of everything. And but the, the big bulk part is, you know, for people that don't know what an athletic trainer is, I think most do. But if you watch sport, those that run out on the floor, onto the court, on the field, uh and attend to the uh, athlete when they get injured that's usually the athletic trainer and, and and sometimes in our in our at this level the team doctor may may come out as well um uh, mike do you, you have anything to add from that
3: no not really i think um you know when aaron and i kind of worked together we talked about athletic training um and aaron was big on kind of like varying your background so when i went to school it, you know, I wasn't just going to specialize in basketball, even though I knew I wanted to be there. He was like, you know, work as many different sports as you can. Um, you know, get exposed to all those different sports, the injuries that, that accompany those sports, um, and then at the same time, you know, consider strengthening strength and conditioning certifications um, to again vary your background to make you um, a little more versatile when it when it comes to entering the workplace at some point in time. So, um, you know, it. it At some point for us, we kind of blurred the lines between the two Um, and a big thing for Aaron um, and a big thing that I took here was, you know, when he stepped into the role um, as the head athletic athletic trainer for the Suns and the role that he sits in now, it's kind of knocking down the walls that figuratively can exist between the weight room and the training room and try to bring your staffs together so that they can communicate effectively. Um, You know, he... He's realized and I realized over the years, that's the only way you can really provide, um, you know, great quality care to your athletes and to be able to serve your organization um, the way that it, need, it should be served. Um, so yeah, there certainly is a distinction kind of on the medical side for an athletic trainer, um, but we both kind of carry strength and addiction as well to make sure that we can understand what our staff is experiencing on a day-to-day, but we can also pull everyone together and try to speak the same language. Awesome.
0: Well, I, you know, Mike Elliott, you obviously know that, you know, having the importance of having a mentor, which I know that you have, you know, a huge respect for Aaron and Aaron, of course, you've been around in the league for so long as well. But, you know, we all have kind of a a mentor that we uh, that's a, a common person. So we look at someone like Mike Clark. And when you guys were introduced and you actually took the NASN methodologies, and implemented it into the suns you guys were the first team to really do that and you had such success with low injury re- rates and you were able to take the methodologies and put it into what you guys do with your athletes and then we saw so like an increase in performance and we saw more players actually playing so how was that because you guys were the first to really do that and you took kind of a leap of faith and this you know protocol that not a lot of people had really started out using so was it a shock to you when you saw it? Did it make sense to you? Like, how did you really start to use, especially the CES to so the corrective exercise? How did you put that into play? And then, you know, what made you just go all in? Cause you guys did. And there was, there was a positive, of, you know, it, it, there was positive reinforcement after the fact, but you didn't really know that when you started, I'm guessing, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the approach is, is different than what was traditional. And, uh, you know, working with Mike Mark early on and getting to know him at 98, and I'm, I'm listening to him and watching the way things are approached, I was like, wow, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I don't understand it fully because this wasn't my background and he would rattle it off and I'd ask him to call and leave messages so I could actually listen to the message over a few times before I, oh, okay. Um, and to that being said, when the, when the initial PESC actually he gave me the manuscript, so I have the old binder like handwritten notes and stuff in it, in a box. And I, I, have it, I think I brought it to New Orleans with me. So hopefully I have that for all time sake. It's, 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 historical documents. Um got going to
1: take but, pictures of that and turn it into like an NFT or something, you know, probably yeah. worth, worth a lot of money.
2: Right. I, I mean, it's, there's like, I don't know how many, a dozen, 20 different little bind, little binders of it. Um, but that being said, you know, when, when, talking to him and trying to figure out a different approach. And, and early on, I guess this, this filled the, the void of injury prevention. And, you know, that's a lot of what athletic training is about is injury injury prevention and then obviously uh, care and, and rehab, but uh, performance wasn't as big as it is now. And then now recovery and everything else. And we can talk about that later if we want, but going back to that, uh, trying to initiate a plan or a, Philosophy around a different approach to treat individuals and help keep them on the court. In in our case, uh, and and then finding the people around like like Mike and Casey and um, a strong enough unit that could support that and do it. And you know we were fortunate. Uh, I think NASM was in Calabasas at, at that point, and you know I was spending a lot of time flying back and forth. Uh, alone in with athletes, meeting with Mike and, and, and some of the NSM staff and learning a lot about it. And then going to our general manager, who was Brian Clangelo at the time and just saying, Hey, you know, here's what I'd like to do. And I was still within, you know, my first contract. I'm like, this better go well, or we're out and and it won't, it won't go well. And fortunately, fortunately for us, it it went really well. And we're, you know, to be able to dramatically decrease the games loss to you. the injury was huge, but guys were playing at a much better level. But we, you don't know that because performance wasn't talked about it as the way it's talked about now. Uh, so that's kind of the the beginning of it. And then Mike, you know, Mike was coming right out of college. So he'd probably give you a better feel for the, the bridging the gap, you know, so quickly between college where I was actually out of college for, you know, at that point when I took over seven, uh, probably eight years. So there's, there's a little bit of gap. Mike, Mike jumped in pretty quickly. So,
3: yeah, I mean, I had a pretty similar experience with Mike where he would work with us um, game nights and I would learn from him as he was kind of working with players on the table. So he would assess range of motion and he would kind of uh, inhibit certain structures, lengthen others. He would do mobilizations and I would sit there and at, at the beginning just kind of watch as an intern. And try to figure out what in the world was going on. And as Aaron said, he could speak for two minutes, but there's probably two hours worth of material in those two minutes. And I would unpack it. I honestly would unpack it for days or weeks at a time, um, each game night. And things would start to make sense over this long period of time for me. Um, and then when he published the PES and the CES, it pulled everything together for me. Um, I certainly had a, a leg up on on a lot of people to be able to learn from him directly um you know to teach me hand placement to teach me kind of how the kinetic chain functioned, um what dysfunctions you know could lead to what um all sorts of different things that certainly are in the pes and the ces but um you know aaron and, and i and our group uh, was extremely lucky to to learn from him um himself kind of one-on-one
1: yeah, that's uh, that's great, and I know uh, Wendy mentioned this, but we both benefited as well from some direct mentorship and guidance uh, from Mike, um, and so that's that's great to hear. Um, you know, obviously the uh, transition from you know focusing more on acute care management and rehab to injury prevention is is huge, and at the time. Um, you know, that movement focused approach, movement first approach, um, wasn't as popular probably as it is today. Would you agree that, you know, more, more teams, more organizations uh, approach how they, they take care of their athletes from a movement first perspective, or is it still uh, not as as prevalent as you think it should be? No, I think it's much more
3: scientific now. Um, I think everyone has some sort of an assessment that they utilize. Um, to kind of apprise where their athlete is at any point in time. And then they design their own interventions based off of those assessments. Um, for us, that was introduced to us by Mike. You know, I think, um, when I was in school, it was a, you know, this guy sprained his knee. Okay. What are we going to do for his knee? Um, or, he, you know, he sprained his ankle. What are we gonna do for his ankle? He strained his hamstring. What are we going to do for his hamstring? And Mike, um, you know was the first person to introduce to me hey there's other things going on within this person's body that have led to these certain injuries and ailments you know if you can intervene um, ahead of time you can possibly prevent these things um, and certainly took a lot of um, learning and, and as aaron said a leap of faith but um, you know certainly certainly saw the benefit of that but i think we're at the point now where where everyone has some sort of, of scientific method that they employ Uh, with their athletes and it certainly i think has benefited everyone yeah no doubt
0: well, I know for me, if it makes you guys feel better when Mike talked to me, I would say the same thing, like, okay, wait a minute, you got to come down to my level because I have no idea what you're saying to me right now. And I thought I was super smart at the time, um, but realized very quickly that- I Well, knew- you guys are
1: both ASU grads, right? I mean- Oh,
0: Ooh. there we go. <laughs>
1: there we go.
0: <laughs> all right. You know what? You're going to stay in that basement. <laughs>
1: yeah. For all of you uh, listening and watching that, I've been relegated to the basement. Uh <laughs> (laughs) I was joking isn't the first time, but, um, anyway,
0: Um, well, well, I was going to ask if you guys can share, share some insight on this because, you know, as, as someone that doesn't understand what goes on behind the scenes when you're watching a game or if you go to a game, and you're a spectator and you're watching your team play, you see the guys come out, they're running and they're doing their their shots. And every once in a while they'll get down and one of you guys or some strength and conditioning coach will stretch them or do some stuff. But can you just give the listeners an understanding of what happens pre-game behind the scenes? Because it's not just, hey, they show up, they put on their uniform and they go out and they, they shoot some free throws or whatever. Um, I think it's important for to understand there is the process and then how do you manage that with the team? Because there's just one or two of you, even if you had a staff of 10, there's more guys there than, than you have staff for. So how do you manage that and get everyone ready to play their best?
2: I think that's grown as well. You know, initially, Mike could tell you er early on because the staffs are so small, you you take care of your starters or at least your main guys and you know, in, in daily stuff, uh getting ready for practice post-practice pre-game post-game guys that you could handle you know you, just, you couldn't get everybody through and then it's grown now where you know in our case all 15 players that are here will get table work and then go in and do corrective exercise before practice and before games and and everybody's a little bit different so every, and it's important that everybody's tailored uh to what they need. It, it, it's, it's different. So we get on get in, getting them on the table and doing one thing for one guy is different than the next guy. And then putting them in. Sure, you can do some group stuff in the corrective exercise area. Um, and, and we have a great staff here that, you know, is really good about moving guys through and, and grouping guys when they need to get grouped or individualizing. And that, that's the way it is now. And, and, and Mike will tell you too, it, it's grown. More and more guys want something immediately before the game, so more and more staff is going out. Whether it's stretching, doing some uh, some type of a warm up, extra warm up, um, maybe even some joint mobilization. Maybe it's uh, it's a little bit of everything, in, in all honesty. And maybe they run back to the locker room and get get a little extra work on the table as well. Um, but but Mike can share share that too. That's really evolved and, and grown over the years. Because if you go to a game, you'll see a, a lot of players. Uh, at center court on, on each side doing a little bit different things. Yeah, as, as
3: Nelly said back in the day, you can only see a handful of guys really before the game um, because there were really – at one point in time, it was Aaron and myself in the training room, and then we had a strength coach um, in the weight room. And so the two of us were trying to get through as many people as we could. Um, you know, and the staffs have grown at this point in time to where we've got, um, you know, eight to ten depending on um, – what organization do you work for? Eight to 10 staff members uh, who are with the team, you know, in various roles, athletic trainers, PTs, strength and conditioning coaches. Um, and so from a pregame perspective, we try to take a regimented approach where we schedule time for guys on the table. Uh, we schedule time for them to get in the weight into the weight room, and then they schedule time to get onto the court to get their pregame warmup. Uh, and that affords us the opportunity, you know, if we've got four people or so, providing the manual therapy joint mobilizations. It gives them time to to see each individual person uh, that they are accustomed to working with. And then we can send those four people to the weight room, which depending on where you are in the league is of differing size. There's some places where you're, you're working in the, in the tunnel, um, in the, in the, on the way out to the court. And there's places where you're working, um, in a hallway there's places that have like a nice proper weight room for you Um, but that affords kind of small group opportunities to get in there and to get moving Um, and then that gives an opportunity to get to the court as well so um, we try to schedule everything out so everyone knows where they're supposed to be at any given time so that nothing falls between the cracks Um, and then what we try to do is keep you know the, the same two three four people that i work with i try to do that every single game night so that i can see what their impairments are over time and try to intervene accordingly. I'll update corrective exercise, walk straight into our strength and conditioning and staff and say, hey, I saw these two new things on the table today. Can you tweak his corrective exercise to reflect those things? Um, You know, can you change some of this targeted self-stretch, that sort of thing? Um, And then, you know, during the course of the game, when the fans are watching to see whether or not their team wins or loses, I think, you know, Aaron would agree, two of us are out there kind of looking more at, at how people are moving um, at any point in time. So trying to identify, you know, any impairments that might be popping up or anything that, uh, that we might need to intervene uh, with after the game or even the next morning, so.
1: Yeah, well, that's awesome. Um, you know, there's quite a bit, I wanna dive a little bit deeper on there. One, I guess, when you talk about that process from, getting on the table, doing soft tissue work, joint mobilizations and so forth, and then the athlete transitioning into the weight room for some correctives uh, to finally getting on the court, you know, h- how long does that process usually take just to give our, our listeners some perspective? because so I think you know, one of the challenges that, that we continually run into at NASM with some of our courses and the methodology is um, the practical application and the uh, utility of corrective exercise. How do you fit all this stuff into a a comprehensive program and still have enough time to do some training, strength and conditioning, um, uh, you know, stuff that's going to move the needle as it relates to fitness or performance goals. And so I think any Opportunity to highlight that you know corrective exercise doesn't have to be this you know super long blown out program, but uh, something that if you address continually on a regular basis, you know that the time that you need to dedicate to it may be much less than what what people realize. And so if, if you could shed some light on that process and you know also just kind of go into what drives that process, uh, mm-hmm. how do you determine what areas to to do soft tissue and joint mobs on um, prior to going into the the correctives? I think that would be really beneficial and, and valuable for our listeners
2: tony i, I think you hit it right on the head that you, you've got to be consistent and and you know as long as you're doing the corrective exercise and the table work and the stuff consistently then then sure you don't have to spend an exorbitant amount of time to do it now you might have a guy that wakes up with something that he you know happened in the game the night before or from a bus ride or from an airplane slept in the bedroom whatever uh, and you might have to spend some extra time, but you know, in, in typically on, from a table work, uh, getting them on the table, 20 to 30 minutes max, and, and we could reduce that. We, we could literally hit specific areas, but we try to go a little extra. And, you know, as long as the guys are here and we have the time to do it. So it's 20 to 30 minutes. And then same thing in the weight room, 20, 30 minutes of corrective exercise, and then lifting if they need to lift what we've done, uh, which again, you have to have communication and, and understand and appreciate the people you're working with. If for whatever reason a wrench gets thrown in, the coach wants these four guys out on the court to do some extra walkthrough stuff, instructional stuff. And, and something gets messed up, now we have to decide what's more important, the table work or the corrective exercise. Well, they're both important. So if there's four guys, we might know they might need to do a little bit more stuff on the table others yeah, can go in the the weight room more we'll flip it so then the time gets split up more or if they're like you have one hour or you have 45 minutes uh today to do your routine with the guys and we'll be like okay today we can probably get through and you do hyperbolt and we'll, we'll get the guys out in 15 minutes and then we can have a full 30 minutes in, in the weight room and do extra stuff but in all honesty, I, I've heard that in, in a, at a lot of different levels and, and a lot of different sports that ah, I just don't have time, just so don't have that. You can make time because even even if you pick three or four corrective exercises and three or four things on the table to do, and, and then maybe you followed up with some dynamic stretching or something, you could be done with a person if it was just one person in 20 minutes if you wanted to. If you wanted to. Just by doing the bare minimum, you know, you're still going to make some changes now at this level, we're, we're not, we're trying to give them as much time as we can. So maybe some extra stuff's done after, but if you really want to bring in, you have 30 guys and you want to get them through, you probably can get them through in, you know, in, in groups, depending on the size of your staff in a much smaller amount of time by isolating and figuring out what group needs to be, you know, maybe it's a hip group that they really have tight hip internal rotation. This is a, a lower extremity foot and ankle because they, their their toe or their ankles, the dorsiflexion is terrible and, and we want them to do some so you can do different things and different ways to set it up. It's 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 not difficult. Uh and again, it doesn't have to be, ah, oh, we gotta get twenty exercises done in the weight room. We've got to get an hour's worth of work on the table. Would the guys love to lay on the table for an hour? Absolutely. It's like going to get a massage. Uh but more painful. Uh so you know, to that extent, you, you can facilitate whatever whatever time is allotted. Mike
3: yeah. So we take a, an approach kind of on a game night where everybody, we try to get everybody slotted for 20 minutes on the table and 15 minutes in the weight room and corrective exercise for us on the game night looks a little bit different than it does on a practice day. And same thing really from a manual manual therapy perspective on a game night, we take a really targeted approach uh, with 20 minutes. As to, and We have an understanding with each individual athlete kind of where they are at any point in time, but we certainly use a goniometer to measure range of motion before we intervene uh, and then we, we measure again after to make sure that, that what we did was effective and that, that we gained uh, the desired result. And then um, kind of on a game night from an activation, uh, corrective exercise perspective, we may target one or two things on the table uh, to activate before they get to the weight room. And then in the weight room, um, you know, we try to turn on their TVA. We try, try to turn on their glute med or max. And we take a more dynamic approach with like a multi-joint, multi-planar movement. And then we use something, uh, that's, that's more reactive, um, because they're about to play any game. So we really got to try to get them feeling reactive prior to that. Um, then on a, on a practice day, a little bit different where we can take a more, um, kind of deliberate approach to corrective exercise, you know, as, as Aaron said, if you have someone who, who has uh, limited hip internal rotation, we can spend some more time diving into that dysfunction, um, on, on a practice day, cause we're afforded more time to do so game night, you're certainly trying to get everybody feeling good, but feeling ready for the game, feeling bouncy, get them out to the court on a practice day. We can really dive into some of those, some of those dysfunctions, those impairments, try to try to make some
0: changes. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the way that, that you guys, are telling us a lot about this corrective exercise and being able to identify with each player what they need specifically and obviously we're all about individualization because that's you know every person is different we move different we play different. we, we <laughs> do everything differently um but when do you guys do like how do you do your assessments do you do it at the beginning of the season and then what assessments do you feel are the most important to give you the, the information for each player because, you know, we hear, oh, they must, you know, they play at a high level. So is it how much they bench, how much they squat, or is that even important? You know, because we, we think if they're at a high level, we need to do the most high level and, and get, you know, these, these numbers, but in your, in your experience, is that true? And also what, what assessments do you feel are most important and why?
2: i think this strength is incredibly important but movement's more important than anything you can be as strong as an ox and not and not move well and you're going to underperform and you know when and things that we're measuring as far as like training loads go uh you're working a lot harder so you're going to wear out a lot faster so number one you need to move well so i don't want to take that away from strength the strength is important but again moving well is is number one so that being said uh you know we, we do pre season, postseason assessments and then do every it depends, two to two to four weeks assessments and then we'll do quick quick check assessments uh, when they come in, particularly if they came in, they like, ah, my ankle feels stuck, or hey, I've a little knee tendonitis, or my back's a little stiff. You might spend a little more, more extra time, but use goniometer like Mike says, check hip internal rotation, uh, knee ninety the hamstring ninety ninety, ankle dorsiflexion, first empty p joint. Um, you know, you can do all that and in two minutes and and have a pretty good idea of what's going on and and looking for symmetry you know right to left maybe you know they they feel something on the left side that's actually coming from the right side so we can address that really quickly spend literally you know from manual therapy or joint uh, mobilization uh some neuromuscular stretching you can spend five minutes in and probably correct most of that stuff so If you can address that, particularly in a practice, like Mike said, you don't have as much time on a game night, but in a practice, uh, if if a guy's coming in, we know they're going to be out on the court. If we can eliminate some of the risk factors that that could cause injury, um, at this point we're not worrying about them performing well because it's not a game where they're in a practice, we just don't want them to get hurt. Uh, So if we we can eliminate that and save us some headaches down the road uh, and spend literally less than five minutes to solve it, that's a no-brainer
0: what are you doing in your, your preseason? Like for what, what are your, your go-to assessments when they come in the door?
3: So for us, uh, range of motion, movement efficiency, uh, and then we'll do some other testing. We'll do some force plate testing, some CMJ, uh, we'll do less testing. Um, certainly over the course of the season, try to hit those in a serial fashion. So hit movement efficiency kind of first week to, first week of the month second week of the month hit range of motion get back to the force plates and and the various testing that we do there and then the last testing and then try to start over uh the following month um we do we do a biometric uh questionnaire with our guys uh try to do that on a daily basis so whether it's pushed to their phones or there's an ipad or or uh there's a kiosk set up um they can input some information for us on a daily basis about, uh, the prior night's sleep, any soreness they might have, uh, how their mood is, um, diet from the previous day, et cetera. It's just 10 questions. It's very quick to, to, uh, to fill out. Um, and we get some good information for that. And then it really just gives us an opportunity to have a a one-on-one discussion with an athlete and say, Hey man, I saw that your left knee is sore. You know, what's going on? Tell me about that. Um, which, which is really helpful for us. Um, you know, like we were saying earlier, back in the day, there were three of us on staff and you were having those one-on-one conversations every day. And now we've got more athletes, um, bigger staffs, and there's a, there's a bigger fight for time. So, you know, can we get some of that information to, uh, to kind of needle us to go have a conversation? I think that's been helpful for, for our group, certainly. Uh, so a number of things that we follow over time, um, and we try to use all of them, we really do. The only things that we're going to employ are those that are going to inform our decision making process, change our interventions and really kind of get our athletes to feel different over time. Um, if we come across something that seems interesting, but we don't think it can uh, be actionable, then we, we won't utilize it. So, Cool.
1: Now, uh, Mike, you mentioned a few things. So movement efficiency, just for our audience. Uh, movement efficiency testing would be looking at stuff like the overhead squat, single leg squat, um, certain range of motion or mobility assessments. Uh, you mentioned CMJ uh, counter movement jump and then the LESS test uh, landing error scoring system. Uh, would you mind just kind of sharing how, with the counter movement jump and the LESS, uh, how you incorporate those or what you're looking for from those particular assessments? Just because those are. Those are things that we highlight in some of our courses, but I don't know if uh, you know how often they get used. So it's nice to hear that you guys are using stuff like that, and, and would be great to get an understanding. Of, you know, what do you take away from that? Why do you do those types of assessments? Yeah. So you know, Aaron said earlier that
3: like, movement is the you know proper movement is, is the biggest thing in the world, um, and a big part of that is symmetry. So so using force plates to assess symmetry uh, on a on an exercise like a CMJ. It's big for us. So, you know, are they overloading one side or the other when they're trying to create force? And are they overloading one side or the other when they're trying to dissipate force? Um, and to follow that serially over time will help us change our interventions on the table in the, in the weight room with our players. Um, when it comes to the less tests, um, we follow that over, over time as well. And that's a great way for us to see how, you know, they're they're able to dissipate and create force as well because we do those on the force plates as as well. And that's a little bit more dynamic task, asking them to to step off of a a box, land and explode up again. Um, And that just really kind of for us, allows us to kind of attack the tip of the pyramid. Um, Some of the the interventions that we designed from a jump landing perspective, um, changing planes, those sorts of things to make sure that they can do that properly. Um, in a dynamic environment, because at the end of the day, that's where they operate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Pretty important for basketball, for sure. Um, and then, you know, with symmetry, is there a particular benchmark or something that you guys are looking for as ideal, you know, or a, s- a certain range?
3: It really depends on the individual athlete for us. Um, we'll follow each one of them over time um, and try to see where they live. Um, you know, and there's certain certainly some some uh, benchmarks for each one of those guys that we design over time and uh you know to be able to follow them on a serial basis to get a monthly uh metric it, is huge um you know just to try to prevent injury um, because again we can we can change the way that we intervene in the weight room and even in the training room uh, but then also from a return to play perspective we understand where we need to get them back to to safely return to the court
1: gotcha Um, you know, it's interesting too, you mentioned just this battery of assessments that you guys do, um, you know, typically you might find with like a counter movement jump or some other force plate testing, if there's a discrepancy between one side or the other, you know, it's, it's probably common to just try to attack the, the underperforming side with more strength or power work. But, uh, that's where I think the importance of all the other assessments that you guys do come into play because somebody can display uh, asymmetries on one side, either eccentrically or concentrically, and it may not have anything to do with their actual strength or power uh, capabilities. It could be range of motion driven, right? So do you guys find that after looking at some of the range of motion data, uh, overlaying that with with the force plate data and then addressing some of those range of motion or mobility limitations that it has a positive impact on their strength and performance with those every single times.
3: time like we we overlay that stuff every single time with our guys we've actually got our own um website that our director of performance science has created so everybody each one of our guys has a page that we can pull up and it has all of their metrics side by side and it affords us the opportunity as a group when we have our morning meetings to go through each individual guy or targeted guys on a, on a given day and just say hey, look here's where they are following testing. We can overlay everything and say, hey, look, you know, his, his ability to create force on the CMJ on the right side's down a little bit. Let's dive into his range of motion his movement efficiency today. We can quickly check those. Um, and then we say, okay, yeah, right-sided hip internal rotation is decreased. Let's inhibit stru- structures X, Y, and Z. We'll turn, you know, structures A, B, and C on. Let's get them back to the, to the force plates and let's see if that's changed anything. Um, so to be able to use that inter- that, that information, um, to overlay it, to make sure everything's married up is huge because a lot of times that, that lets us be really efficient in the way that we, that we, um, care for our athletes.
2: Yeah. Tony, a couple, couple things around that. Um, one, one obviously that everybody can have force plates, force X. And when and we, you know, most professional teams, if not all do so it's nice to be able to add like mike says we do the same thing we do not everybody does the last test they might use the the force or force plates but we do it same thing going on to a force deck and and so we get two basically two tests in one and that's that's nice and it's great because to your point a lot of times historically it's oh there's a weakness there's something going on at strength and it's really not we can pull someone off and look how they're landing do while the other guy is going, if, we're, if we have four players come through at a time, do a couple quick, you know, some myofascial stuff or, you know, some release techniques or joint mobilization that takes literally less than a minute, get them back on there and everything's fine. Like You know, and you can look at the numbers in real time, which is great. Not everybody has that. And that being said, I, I think it's important, you know, if as clinicians and practitioners that are training the average population or training your kids at home or uh training friends or whatever if you have any type of baseline assessment uh that, that that's the most important thing so you can go back to the traditional like the left test shark skills test um the y test you know you could, i think the uh the left test is great particularly if, if you're training athletes just so you can look at you know potential uh acl injury prevention issues so uh you as long as you have a baseline and again, outside of like what Mike talked about, we, we do a lot of similar testing. Uh, we also have just baseline testing that we only do once. We do it at the very beginning of the year. There's maybe six tests. These other things that we do uh, every couple of weeks or monthly um, are additional tests. But when an individual gets hurt, so if you're a practitioner or clinician training, you know, someone that wants to play softball you know or they want to play in their kickball league whatever whatever that ends up being and they get hurt you can go back now and at least you have a baseline to see are they within 10 15 percent of what their what what the number was you know two months ago three months ago or whatever and it becomes very easy but I think having some type of baseline you know for everybody not only you know the, the personal trainer but all the way up to people working with professional athletes you have to have something and you have to have something that that you can track and then make like mike said make actionable that you can now look at the numbers and start looking you know over a period of time and i see seen a decrease in hamstring strength is it what, what's the reason for that is it fatigue is there an injury you know what, what's actually going on so there's a lot of different uses a lot of different ways but i think as long as you have a baseline uh and then you can start building around that baseline You'll always have something to go back to if you're going to continue. Cause think think about you probably hear this from your clinicians, practitioners that are just training people on a daily basis. Once they get hurt, they don't want to train anymore. They, you know, they might lose clients and patients because they don't, they just don't want to train anymore. They, what I'm doing didn't work or didn't help, or I'm just mad and I'm not gonna pay for someone to, to train me and I'm gonna be hurt. So having something, having a way and, and being able to show and visualize to that person, to that athlete. Here's where you were. Here's where you are now, and here's where we're going to get you back. And all these things and these tools we have, you just have to pick and choose the right ones.
1: Yeah, so well said. So important, um, especially for uh, for trainers and practitioners and coaches at all levels. Um, you know, you guys mentioned this before, but recovery. Uh, you know, Mike, you mentioned the the questionnaire that you have the the guys do. Um, you know what impact does sleep soreness uh what impact does that have on recovery how does that change you know let's say a guy scores uh lower on a on that subjective questionnaire you know how does that impact what you might do with them on a given day and um to piggyback off of that sorry i've got multiple questions here um you know with all with the advent of all these new recovery technologies and modalities you know what uh, what type of impact ha- have um, have you seen that those things have on, you know, how players respond to playing and uh, and training?
3: Yeah. So the the, uh, the daily questionnaire gives us the opportunity to sit down with a player and, and, and kind of dive into what might be happening kind of um, when they're away from basketball and away from our facility or the game. Um, and, then it allows us to have a conversation with them sort of an educational one about sleep and diet nutrition. Um, and you know, for each individual guy, it's going to depend on what they have, um, what what they're coming home to, what their habits are. And it's going to be, you know, if if a player's exhibiting kind of, um, some sleep interruption, um, or can't get into a proper routine, We've got to understand it's gonna be it's gonna be a long kind of battle to get them to change uh, that side of their life. Um, so many guys this day and age are really young and they wanna stay up late and play video games. Um, mm-hmm. you know, plenty of these guys are new fathers and they have young children and, and they're trying to help uh, you know, their wives get those kids down to sleep and they're gonna the kids sleep's gonna be interrupted, their sleep's gonna be interrupted, all those sorts of things. So, you know, what strategies can we could put into place to help our guys, you know, get to sleep quicker? So you know, can they turn off the blue lights? Um, you know, can they get into a habit of reading? Can they get into a habit of, of turning down the lights and foam rolling and stretching before they go to bed? Um, you know, can they, can they try to get to 15 minutes earlier on a given night? And then can we two weeks later say, Hey, can you try to go to, to sleep another 15 minutes earlier? A lot of education around sleep these days uh, with our athletes. Um, and then a lot of education as well with our coaching staff, um, to try and tailor you start a practice to afford our guys the opportunity to sleep a little bit more. Um, you yeah, know, that that's a huge one right now. Um, certainly diet and nutrition is big. We have uh, young guys come to our team with, with really terrible habits when it comes to that. Uh, we're lucky, we have our chef is an RD who our players think is the best restaurant in town and he is phenomenal when it comes to hiding uh, veggies and all sorts of good things in their food and they don't know what's in there. And uh, all of a sudden, he's like, Hey, man, you, you had a hamburger today, but it had X amount of mushrooms in it. Did you know that? No, I had no idea. I hate mushrooms. Well, okay, actually, now you like mushrooms. Um, and so he's, he's great about that. And that that really gets a lot of buy in for him, um, for an opportunity to sit down with guys and have one on one conversations about body composition, um, and then nutritional interventions that can help them improve that over time. And Those are kind of two big things for us, sleep and nutrition, that can help really impact the way that a guy feels the day after a game or the day after a practice um, so that he can maintain energy levels um, and really, at the end of the day, maintain his readiness and and be able to play and and stay healthy over time. Uh, Yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, I, I know that we're kind of coming up um, on to, to time and I could literally talk to you guys all day um, and I'm sure you have better things to do than to uh, hang out with Tony and I and, and our crew. Oh,
1: I However, two hour episode.
0: <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to go, yeah, right? Hey, if you got the time, I'm here all day. But, um, but, you know, I have actually one final question and it's really more about you guys, not just about the team, but you have been doing this um, for so many years and you're both married, you have beautiful children. Like how do you find the work life balance? Because Tony and I, I mean, we have one kid and we struggle and we're here all the time. You guys travel and have, you know, multiple athletes to look out, you know, look after and and literally make sure that they're healthy enough to play. So you guys get the stats on the board. However, you know, how do you make it work personally?
2: It's challenging. And, and uh, you know, Mike got to see before he got married. I was already married and he got to see my kids, you know, going through it. And and it's hard trying to find that balance, you know, to spend time with your wife, let alone your your kids and missing uh, birthdays and school events. I, i missed, I missed two, two games in going on 29 years. And one of them was the birth of my second son. And my daughter was born as we came back from a trip from Portland. Uh, coming to Phoenix, which is a long flight, as Mike could tell you, back going from Portland to Phoenix and the time change, um, and had the, had that had a back to back, and actually got back for the birth, and then made the game, went back, so went two days without sleeping. So you make sacrifices, uh, you know, for your family to do it. I'm leaving. We have the draft on Thursday, and I'm leaving Friday for my daughter, uh, my nine year old daughter, who is in the softball World Series in Florida. So I'm going to see that literally turn around after they win the championship and uh, fly to Vegas for summer league. So it, it, it's finding the gap. And, and right now, before school starts, I have two two older boys, one that's going to be a freshman in high school, another one that's going to be in sixth grade. And my time is lifting, uh, doing corrective exercise, uh, working on vert, doing some vert plyometric training with my, old, my older one. And then uh doing some stability training with my 11 year old and throwing throwing 500 balls in the batting cage every day to him to the point where i can't you see i probably have a dead arm in picture uh so it's finding time to do it and and mike and i've talked about this a a lot and it's it's hard so that's it's a long-winded answer but if anybody deserves any any credit for anything we do it's probably our wives for all the extra time that they have to uh spend getting the kids to and from school and practices and games and all the activities they want to do and friends' houses and and we're not around. Cause man, when the season's over and I come back, I'm like, how did you do all this? So.
1: Yeah, um, and Wendy, I'm glad you asked that question. Cause I think, you know, for many professionals and practitioners, you know they aspire to be where the two of you are working in professional sports. And I think, you know, that side of things is is, greatly underappreciated, just the, the time commitment that you have to put into uh, doing your job, uh, ensuring that everything gets done that needs to get done, and um, the sacrifices that that have to be made. And so, you know, it's certainly commendable. Uh, Wendy and I have both been able to to kind of experience it as outsiders looking in and yeah, it's just it, It's amazing, and I don't think people really understand how much work it takes for you guys to, to do what you do behind the scenes. And then, you know, uh, secondary to that, what your family's, uh, the amount of work and, and effort they have to put in uh, when you're not there. Um, and, and so, you know, Mike, I'd love to hear your, your insights too. Uh, and then just talk about, you know, Nellie, you mentioned the uh, Summer League. I mean, literally, do you guys get... How much time do you get off you know if you think about the uh the typical um person uh, working individual or you know uh, fitness professional where there's some flexibility and latitude with scheduling like what is a what does a year look like uh, at, at the end of the day uh in terms of how much time you get off and you're not you're not working
3: during COVID or not during COVID? what do we get There's no such thing as a weekend. um, Seemingly even in the summer now, Um, you know, whether they're pre-draft workouts, we have players coming in town to spend some time with us uh, in the summer. Somebody's always in the building. Um, And so we try to, you know, coordinate coverage with our staff to afford people some time off. uh, Certainly. Um, Aaron was always big about pushing us out to have vacation. I do the same thing with my staff now. So, you know, I think we're, we're a bigger staff now. So we're, we're able to, uh, get people out of the building to go have vacation and spend time with their families and reconnect. Um, shoot, my youngest last night came walking down the stairs with my phone in his hand and he's like, look, I'm daddy. And he's two years old. And I'm like, okay, awesome. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a, certainly is a a very demanding job. You know, like I said, not a lot of weekends, not a ton of vacation time. Traditionally, um, uh, summer league is in Las Vegas in July. And when that ceases, um, everyone kind of, there's this max, mass exodus out of town, people stay out of the building and then you kind of reconvene after labor day. Um, So, you know, everyone sort of, uh, from a time off perspective, looks forward to August. That's really your opportunity to get out. Um, but otherwise, you know, it's, it's demanding in season. There's not a lot of days off. Um, plenty of times where you have a, an off day on the road, which doesn't mean that you have an opportunity to connect with your family or get any errands done or offload anything, um, you know, for your better half. Um, and really, you know, if you if you do the math at the end of the day and you have a wife and kids and you're you're out of town for 120, 130 plus days a year, um, you're missing out on years of people's lives. Um, doing doing these uh these sorts of jobs so you know before you get into it you got to have a good understanding of that you know it takes a lot of dedication it takes an understanding uh, spouse and partner um, and you've got to do everything you can when you have that time with your family to take advantage of it Um, i've got a our oldest is five years old and he had 10 soccer games this year and i got to two of them um so you have to have that understanding before you get into this, um, as, as to as to what that means um, from a, a time spent perspective, and then really take advantage of, of the opportunities, the small opportunities you do have to to dive into your families.
2: Wendy, Tony, to put that in perspective, what Mike was saying, I, I think I shared this with Mike. I've shared shared it with a couple, just a few people, not very many, but right before I left Phoenix to come here. I was looking, I went back. I I also did travel for the team. So I I knew when we were leaving, when we were out of town. So I went back from the point that all three of my kids um, were born until at that point. And my, my oldest son at the time was 11. My middle son was about eight and a half. My daughter was about six, six, six and a half. And to put in perspective, my 11 year old at the time, I had missed I think it came out to three point eight years of his life just from road travel. So that to put it in perspective, and then on top of that, how often do we get to see him at home? If we home games, you get up before they go to school. They go to school. They come home. We're already back at the arena for the game. So you go days at home where you don't even see him. So you know it. it it's hard, and, and particularly I think, like Mike said, pre COVID or post COVID, it, it, it's you know with a condensed season. You know, I, I think I went in at one point, like seven, seven or so days when I was in town where I saw my kids maybe once or twice. So it, it, it comes. It, it's not great. Um, so, again, you have to take advantage and let them know that that you love them and you're there for them and, and do whatever you can.
0: No, I think that's uh, it's amazing because, you know, I know I hear so many times, especially with me teaching that people aspire to be you guys. But then again, their family life is the most important thing and they don't want to give any of that up. And it's like, you know what? I think with you guys being as honest as you have been, it lets the world know that they it's way harder than it looks because it looks like it's a fantastic lifestyle. You get to travel and work with all these professionals. However, there's a ton of work. There's so much education you have to have and um, you have to be committed not only to your team, but, you know, your wife really needs to be committed to you. <laughs> Sure. 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 Um, well, guys, I know that, that this went um, a little long, but I have one final question, and this is actually for Mike. And Mike, we um, did a, a podcast with Grant Hill, and you were brought up multiple times as well as you, Aaron, but Mike, because Mike worked uh, one-on-one with Grant, especially uh, before the games, and he was calling you Cowboy. And so, can you tell everyone why they call you Cowboy? And um, <laughs> so that way, we can clear up, you know, any any confusion.
3: I, I think most people in the league think that that's like my actual name. Most yes. people don't call me Mike. <laughs> and they certainly don't know what my last name is. Um, I got that nickname um, during my fifth year at ASU, Tony. Um, it's an enjoyable place. Yes. Yeah. Um, Super fun, uh, by the way. It is super fun. Um, which why that's why it takes five years to graduate there. Um, but, uh, my fifth year during my internship with the sons, the team went on a road trip. Um, I have this kind of various presentation of my knee, these nice bowed legs. Um, team goes on a road trip. I decide to go snowboarding for the first time. Um, friends go up a lift, they go off to the right. It's the easy one, the easy run. I was separated behind them on the lift. I thought they went left. That was a bad choice. Fell, went to grab my board to get up, um, herniated disc in my back and, um, went down, had a couple beers, took a nap, couldn't get out of bed. Uh, once I woke up, um, and for, I don't know, Nellie, how long was it? Like a two year period? I tried to rehab and not have surgery. Yeah. uh, Mm -hmm. I, you know, Got this presentation of my knees and all of a sudden I have to walk in like lumbar extension and I'm swaying side to side. And uh, one of our players, Stefan Marbury is like, you look like you just got off a horse. And then he's started calling me cowboy and like literally That day, everyone's like, okay, you're not Mike anymore. And so it was
1: Calvary. (laughs) That's a great story. Yeah. uh, Wendy mentioned that other, uh, our other show that uh, that she does with Ken, Random Fit. Uh, Great interview with Grant Hill, but that's awesome. Uh, That's a great story. Yeah. Nelly so Nelly, <laughs> that's an easy one to kind of figure out, Aaron Nelson. But yeah, boy, that's uh, that's a great one. That is a great one. Well, guys, we want to
0: say thank you so much for spending your time with us, you know, talking to our audience, letting everyone know, you know, what it takes to do what you do, and also just sharing your experiences as well as, you know, how you guys have become so so great at your profession. So we want to say thank you, thank you so much. And um, and hopefully we can do this again soon.
3: Oh, for sure. Thank you. And, uh, thanks for pulling us together. It was awesome. Yeah. Thank you very much.
2: appreciate
1: your time, fellas. As always, uh, enjoy the rest of your week and enjoy your vacations coming up.
3: All All right. Thank you guys.